electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. And here's what's ahead this hour. Is this rotation for real? Transports, industrials and materials are taking the lead from technology as the market leadership. With the Nasdaq languishing down 10 percent from its highs, can this new group keep the market moving forward? We'll ask. Plus, it's the future of medicine. Telehealth use has skyrocketed during the pandemic, and one beneficiary is Amwell, a key player in the industry. We'll speak with the CEO. The shares just opened for trading today. Talk about their IPO debut. And Snowflake is melting, the pandemic surcharge, and the latest on the fast-moving developments with TikTok today. We have all of that ahead for you. But we do begin with the market. Seema Modi here with the numbers for us. Seema. Kelly, while we've seen an onset of new companies within the technology arena, some of the incumbents have come under pressure in recent days, and that's led the Nasdaq to now trade down uh, as much as 10 percent from its recent high, currently down about 2 percent on the day. As we said, uh, some of the better performing names within technology, large cap FANG names, currently down around 2 to 4 percent. Names like Facebook and Amazon now trading down as much as 17 percent from their respective high, but both those names still up about 30 percent on the year. Now, one question that has come up is whether the pullback in technology names will result in a shift into cyclical sectors. Worth noting, nine out of the 11 sectors in the S&P 500 currently trading in negative territory. One of the sectors in the green, industrials, General Electric, now above $7 of share uh, after those comments, positive comments from CEO Larry Culp at an industrial conference yesterday. Caterpillar now at a two-year high in 3M shares, up around 2%. Kelly, back to you. Yeah, definitely a different mix than we're used to. Seema, thank you very much. It's been a tough September for tech. As Seema mentioned, the Nasdaq down about 10% from its intraday high September 2. Apple, Amazon, and Facebook are down more than 15% in that time. Google and Microsoft are off 13%. Why this sea change and how deep of a reset should we expect? Joining me now, James McDonald is the CEO of Hercules Investments and Bryce Doty is senior portfolio manager at SIT Investment Associates. Welcome, guys. And James, I'll start with you. Um, I know there are a lot of tech themes that you like, but I mean, would you say that the pullback in the big cap tech names right now is telling us something more broadly about the market? It's important to understand context and where we're coming from. August had a 30.32 average P.E. ratio in the S&P. And as we know, the S&P is dominated by tech. That was the highest average P.E. month in 20 years. And so there was incredible, incredible gains uh, in August. And so we had to have a pullback as significant as this pullback was, a technical correction. Um, We're still higher than we ended July. The momentum is still there. However, I do think there's continued downside given the macro environment with COVID and uh, we see overall general uh, economic weakness in our country. And so we're going to have some uh, tepid growth. uh, But when we have a big pullback, we're going to go in and buy. James, it's interesting that you say you see more downside for tech, but because of weakness in the macro environment and problems with COVID, a lot of people are thinking that it's actually because of the economic rebound that we're seeing the weakness because people are finally rotating into Caterpillar right. and 3M and some of these other names. They don't they say I can find growth elsewhere than just, 
you know, Facebook and Google. What would right. you say to that? Well, let's uh, put our thinking caps on and look at, you know, where the money is coming from and how it's being spent and how it's being applied. What happens to retail sales when supplementary, supplementary uh, unemployment benefits run out? What happens at that point? What happens when uh, the trickle-down effect of all these sub-industries uh, shutting down and, and, and the momentum of our great bull market of 12 years um, from 09, when, when that starts to slow down and the Fed, where the smartest people in the world, economically speaking, are saying that we're not going to do anything for 38 months, um, to quote Powell, they're going to hold rates until the end of 2023 at the earliest. That's 38 months of uncertainty. Uh, as far as I'll back as I can check, we haven't seen anything like that. With that overhang, uh, there's going to be uh, ramifications from what we've seen in this instant recovery that we saw. Um, it's temporary. As we see in all big market sell-offs, there's a bounce, uh, but this bounce has stopped. We're not going straight up anymore. Okay. Um, and as we come down, we're going to see that across the sectors. And I know tech. all of that is why you like some of the secular growth stories like Datadog, like Zoom, like DocuSign. Right. So, Bryce, let me turn to you, bring you into this conversation. Are you as cautious on the macro outlook and, and COVID and big tech as James? Well, I think the timing of, of what he's talking about, what James is talking about, is, is kind of critical. But that's also what's creating the opportunity in the near term. You're going to see some things take take some hits with the the virus spreading because of everyone going back to school and whatnot. But uh, the vaccine trade is is alive and well and it's full on. Uh, I think that the rotation is is actually going to gather steam. You know, it's it's not that any tech company is in trouble. Okay, it, it has nothing to do with that. It's just you have to sell something to buy all the companies that you think are going to rebound as the vaccine gets rolled out over over the next you know six to nine months. So that. The market's looking out past that. And in, in bonds that we're mostly focused on, it's, uh, it's definitely a time to like go out there and buy some of these, these names that have really been out of favor. Some of the, the REITs, the airlines, the uh, cyclicals and things like that. But hedge yourself with some tips because the, <laughs> the Fed is not going to stop inflation. And, uh, you know, you look at what's happened to inflation in the last three months. If it, if it continued for 12 months, in the CPI would be over 5%. So you need to kind of take that into account. And I think the market's confused by that. So you'll see this, you'll see a lot of volatility as, as investors try and figure out what yeah. is Fed policy. But Bryce, as you know better than anyone, being a fixed income guy, you know, the market is not extrapolating this recent CPI trend into the future. The 10-year is sitting at barely two-thirds of 1% and just doesn't think it's going to be sticky. The Fed itself yesterday said they basically doesn't believe it's going to get to 2% or above inflation for the foreseeable future, despite that now being its mandate. So, I mean, I know you're saying just own tips as a hedge, and in, in that case, it's not the, the base case. But tell me about some of the other parts that you think are more attractive for investors. You mentioned REITs and airlines and cyclicals. Is there still value there on the fixed income side? And, and what about the potential losses there? There are. So you really, it's, it's a minefield, um, especially in high yield. I'm just starting to warm up to high yield again. But with bankruptcies running at record pace, it's really hard to, to like high yield uh, uh, very much. But in investment grade, you, you look at certain companies, um, the amount of money that, let's say, Delta or some of the other airlines been able to raise is going to be enough for them to be sustained throughout the, uh, the downturn. So it, high quality investment grade type names, I think, are still there in the cyclical area that you, that you want to be in. Now, REITs, it's again a minefield. You know, stay away from office REITs. But, 
But any REITs that have, you know, well, they all have certain kinds of leverage. If the Fed is going to keep rates super low, their borrowing costs are going to be super low. So you can get a storage REIT or a residential apartment REIT, you know, that's that's not quite, a, you know, it still has a little hair on it. Okay, it's not <laughs> risk free, but you can still get some income. Yeah, we, we like those types. Got to have a little hair on it in order to get any return these days. And we're going to be talking about right. warehouses a little later on. We'll leave it there for now, guys. Thank you both, Bryce Doty of Sit Investments, James McDonald of Hercules Investments. Uh, some different views about where this market is headed. Let's check on the health of housing. Today's August housing starts data coming in weaker than expected, but a lot of that due to the volatile multifamily unit. Single family starts continue to be a source of strength, and this is Redfin is out with the report that in the month of August home prices were up 11 percent year on year, the biggest gain since February of 2014, and a housing market that's already running red hot. This means homebuyers are facing a median home price of nearly $330,000. Let's bring in our own Diana Olick along with Daryl Fairweather. She is the chief economist at Redfin. Welcome to you both. And Daryl, I'll just start with you. Um, what jumps out the most to you about this home price appreciation that we're seeing? It's just remarkable how strong the housing market is when the rest of the economy is in turmoil. And I think it speaks to how different this pandemic recession is from other recessions in the past. People have changed their relationship to their home, and we're seeing this big game of musical chairs where people are swapping homes to get what they really want. So one more question on this. Are you seeing these gains across the country? Are they concentrated in the suburbs? Uh, Is there an offsetting effect in the places that people are leaving? Home prices went up in every single metro that we track, but you do see a difference between the urban core versus the suburbs. The suburbs and more rural areas are much hotter than some of the downtown areas. And the downtown areas that are the weakest are in San Francisco and New York City. Yeah, that makes sense, Diana. As we know, we've been reporting on this for a a long time now, for months. So, Diana, how high can home prices go? I mean, are we going to look at this as a one-time surge because there was this huge flood of people looking for housing as quickly as they could get their hands on it? Or is it possible that it could be sustained for some time? Well, look, affordability is weakened, and there's only so much people can pay. We have record low mortgage rates. That's giving people additional purchasing power. But as we start to see more supply hit the market, which hopefully we will if the home builders continue to ramp up as they're already doing, then you'll see prices start to cool off a bit. It's all about that very intense demand and that very short supply. You're looking at markets where supply is down anywhere from 20 to 40 percent year over year, and that's in large cities and small cities, and especially in some of those small to mid-sized cities like Oklahoma City or Nashville, which are just seeing a surge in buyers there who are moving out of larger city areas. And I would note also that while San Francisco and New York are seeing this big urban flight, other cities are still seeing a lot of demand within the city as long as there are residential neighborhoods like this one here in D.C. We're in the city limits, Hmm. but this area is incredibly hot because you have homes that have large spaces, you have backyards, you have outdoor areas. And that's really what people still want is to be close to the urban core, but just have that kind of space. And Diana, how is the psychology working in the housing market right now? Because obviously back during the bubble years, the higher prices went, the more interested people got. Are we seeing any signs of that yet or does it seem to be acting in the normal way, which is to turn people off? Well, no, I mean, I don't think you're seeing a bubble in home prices yet because you're continuing to see such strong demand. We also, in the last case, 10 years ago, people were flipping homes, uh, pushing home prices higher because they were using faulty mortgages. That was no money down, very poorly underwritten. 
anybody could buy a house. That is absolutely not the case right now. You must be fully underwritten and you must be able to make those monthly payments or you're not going to get a mortgage. So the finances that are going into today's housing market are much stronger than they were 10 years ago. You also have a tremendous amount of home equity in the market, trillions of dollars collectively that people are just sitting on because home values are so high. So I don't think home prices can get out of hand if people can't afford them. But as long as they are well underwritten and we have these low mortgage rates, you are going to see home prices push higher until you see more supply. And Daryl, a question to you on that, because we've debated this for the last several weeks in particular, whether the underwriting standards are are too tight, um, which, you know, again, no one wants them to be too loose again. But people are saying, you know, there's this massive uh, amount of homeowners who could qualify for a refinance out there. But in some cases, even that uh, paperwork or or those standards are just too difficult. So are you seeing that, you know, this is a constraint on housing activity that it, 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 far from standards being as loose as they were in the bad old days, they remain too tight? The biggest constraint is the supply. So even if everybody who wanted to get a mortgage could get a mortgage, there wouldn't be enough homes for all of those people. So the people who have the most money down, who can make all cash offers, who can waive contingency, they have an edge. And that would be true whether or not the banks loosen their lending standards. All right. Daryl Fairweather, our Diana Olick, talking about the latest trends in the housing market. Thank you both very much. Coming up, it's not just software stocks that are popping this year. Telemedicine also taking off. Ahead, we'll speak with the CEO of one of the biggest telehealth companies in the U.S. It's Amwell, and their stock just opened for trading in their IPO. It's up 38%. Plus, with industrials and materials leading the pack this month, far outpacing tech, we'll take a closer look at which names are driving the rally and if it can last. That and more ahead on The Exchange. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The COVID-19 pandemic has taken telemedicine from a niche service to the primary method of monitoring our health. Amwell is one of the largest telehealth providers in the U.S. They're going public today on the New York Stock Exchange. Just began trading under ticker AMWL. Uh, at about $25 a share they're trading right now versus the IPO price of 18%. With us now is Dr. Ido Schoenberg. He's CEO and chairman of Amwell. It's great to have you here. And uh, why now the timing for this IPO? It's great to be with you, Kelly. Um, basically, we, as you know, started the company about 15 years ago. And we were set to develop a pretty ambitious uh, goal, which is to connect the key players in healthcare namely providers, payers, uh, consumer aggregators, and innovators, in order to improve uh, financial and clinical outcomes in way of connectivity. Um, that uh, very long uh, mission requires enormous amount of time and uh, capital. Uh, we believe that by uh, going public today, we will be able to basically uh, get the resources that we need in order to grow both organically and inorganically 
in a way that aligns our shareholders with our mission. Yeah. Uh, as you probably know, we grew the company with many strategic uh, partners for many years. And if you think about it, while they've been terrific, uh, one of the great benefits of uh, going public is making sure that the only thing our shareholders, uh, new shareholders care about is the success of the company and the realization of our mission. And therefore, it made it made a lot of sense. Sure. So you also, of course, are facing Teladoc, which has had a big year and just did this merger with Livongo to increase its size and scale. So let's talk about your size and scale. It's pretty amazing uh, to take the month of April. Your pandemic or your visits uh, were up to 40,000 a day from 2,900 for the same period in 2019. So just explosive growth. More than half of your total visits, I, I believe, since your founding occurred in the past six months. So how do you take this momentum and keep it going, you know, especially for people who probably think they're just doing this as a one or a one off, something like that, and then it's going to be back to business as usual? Yeah, like many things in life, nothing is as good or as bad as it seems. Uh, there is very little good about COVID. It's a terrible uh, pandemic. Uh, COVID forced a lot of people to be locked in their home. And since they had no choice, they tried uh, telehealth uh, for the first time. When I say people, I, of course, mean patients, but I also mean doctors. So, so many doctors try telehealth uh, for the first time. You know, connectivity means to connect with their trusting uh, patients. And we knew for many years that when they actually do that, they usually like it. And that's very, uh, very important. Uh, we're already beginning to see that when uh, people get used to the new normal, uh, if anyone can get used to it to a certain point, and hopefully that will be over uh, as soon as uh, possible, they do want to wear a mask and see the doctor in person uh, whenever possible. So this uh, giant uh, surge in visits uh, may not be uh, continuing uh, in the same pace, and we fairly expect it to go down uh, for a little bit. But as I mentioned earlier, our goal is not to count visits. And other uh, telehealth companies uh, use it as their main uh, KPI. Uh, our main uh, performance indicator is the number of active providers uh, on our platform. Mm. We simply believe mm -hmm. that in the future, uh, uh, your doctor uh, will connect with you sometimes in person and sometimes online. And it's no, no big deal. It's easy to explain the need. Of course, it's a different story to actually implement it. There are many barriers and complexities, which is what we do. Um, and that will take a, a long time. Yeah. Uh, the good news, however, is that uh, we see other changes in COVID that we believe will be very strong uh, uh, tailwind uh, for the implementation of digital connectivity, starting with reimbursement. Mm -hmm. So the fact that uh, CMS is growingly reimbursing uh, telehealth, we see more and more payment in parity, which of course should be uh, the method of, of paying doctor fairly for their time. There is no real difference if I meet my patient online uh, or in office in way of uh, the compensation uh, I deserve uh, as a doctor. That's very conducive uh, to the model that we have uh, created. Yeah. Uh, our goal is uh, simply to allow our parents, our grandparents, maybe ourselves, uh, to age gracefully in our home and allow us to uh, connect to the existing healthcare system uh, whenever uh, possible. Yeah. So it's not the dock in the box in the cloud. It's basically another tool in the tool set of uh, our trusting uh, providers. And that will take years uh, to develop. Yeah. Uh, we are patient enough to build the platform that will enable that enormous transformation. 
Dr. Schoenberg, it's been a pleasure having you here. And it's interesting, like you say, that maybe we need more parity on the reimbursement front for treating these visits the same way as those in office. Uh, thank you so much again, and congratulations on your first day as a publicly traded company. Thank you so much, Kelly. It's Dr. Ido Schoenberg is the CEO and chairman of Amwell, ticker AMWL. Coming up, could Snowflake's IPO be proof that the IPO process is flawed? If so, how do we fix it? Plus, as e-commerce grew during the pandemic, so did the need to store goods. We're going to talk to the CEO of one company who provides that space on demand ahead. The exchange is back in a couple. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange, and let's get a check on the markets. The Dow briefly turned positive today, but couldn't hold on to those slight gains. In fact, we're down 255 points right now, about 100, 150 points off the session lows, almost a 1% drop. But the action is really in the S&P and in the NASDAQ. The S&P is down almost 1.5% right now, or 49 points. 33.36 is the level there. And the NASDAQ is down more than 2%, or 230 points. It has been the weak spot all day and, in fact, all month. So a quick check on the sectors, again, kind of gives you the feel for this market. And you don't you see technology as one of the worst performing sectors, along with consumer discretionary and communication services, all of those tech-heavy uh, parts of the market down in the range of 1.5 to almost 3%. Meanwhile, the only sectors in the green today are industrials and materials. What a stalwart materials have been lately. Here are some of the individual movers we're keeping an eye on, and we'll begin with Dave & Buster's. It is sharply lower on a Wall Street Journal report that the company may have to file for bankruptcy if it fails to reach a deal with its lenders. Shares are down 25% under $15. Again, one of the vaunted business models of the previous many years, now just having an awful time throughout the pandemic. A tough session for play today. Meanwhile, shares of Perigo are down on a voluntary nationwide recall of its albuterol sulfate in, uh, inhalation aerosols. These are on complaints that some units may not dispense properly due to clogging. Those shares are down about 3%. And finally, shares of Ford are higher. That automaker revealing plans for its upcoming all-electric F-150 pickup. Uh, Ford's up about 3.5% today, but they say this new pickup is going to be a work and not a lifestyle pickup, despite the fact that it's going to be an electric uh, car. They say it'll set it apart from the competition, including Tesla and GM. Let's get to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Sue? Thanks so much, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour, everyone. House Majority Whip James Clyburn blasting Attorney General William Barr for comparing the coronavirus pandemic shutdowns to slavery. In an interview with CNN, Clyburn called Barr's remarks tone deaf. Here's what Barr said last night. Putting a national lockdown, stay-at-home orders is like house arrest. It's, the, it's, the, it's, you know, other than slavery, which was a different kind of restraint, this is the greatest intrusion on civil liberties in American history. 
Clyburn saying that slavery was not about saving lives, it was about devaluing lives. An Italian airline launching two coronavirus-free flights a day. Passengers can only travel on the flights between Rome and Milan if they can prove they've tested negative for the virus within 72 hours before flying. They can also be offered tests pre-flight with results in 30 minutes. And take a look at these cuties. More than a dozen panda cubs in China are celebrating their first birthday. Staff at a panda research center in southwest China threw a party for the cubs on Wednesday. Whoops. <laughs> they look drunk. Hang on there. Well, who knows what's in that fruit, but <laughs> maybe it's fermented fruit. There's a cake in the box. I know that because I looked at this tape earlier. I thought so, I'd make you smile, Kel. I needed it. Thank you very, very much. You got Sarah. it. Ready time. We'll see you next hour. Mm-hmm. Take a quick break. When we come back, just how much money did the Snowflake IPO leave on the table? That plus a pandemic surcharge could be coming to New York's restaurants and one bank's workforce will never be fully back in the office. All that plus the latest on TikTok in today's edition of Rapid Fire. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Leslie Picker, New York Times reporter and CNBC contributor Ed Lee with his uh, not air, but they've got a wire, Ed. It's a bad look. Really? Come on. I thought I thought this was because my wife was telling me the ear pods made me look weird. So I switched it up now. Come on. Yeah, You don't look weird. You just look a little few years behind the times. But it's it's no problem. That's not unusual. (laughs) No, we are delighted to have you here today, along with our own dear Jabosa, because this is an edition of an IFB. Do you think you need one? That's true. I need an IFB. You know, send me an IFB. I'll put it in so I can manage it myself next time. But this is more fun to give you a hard time this way. Okay, um, you, can, you can make fun of me this way. I know. But we are, we are very, very glad that you all are here. And we're going to start with the big story of the day, a fast-moving story, uh, in fact. So it's, it's all about TikTok. Let's get you the very latest. Sources are telling CNBC that President Trump is expected to decide on TikTok's fate in the U.S. in the next 24 to 36 hours. They're saying Walmart is expected to partner with Oracle for the deal. And we're actually getting some new details on this at this very moment. So let's also bring in our Julia Borson. Julia, what can you tell us? Well, Kelly, I'm hearing from sources that Walmart is definitely expected to be in this deal, that it's not final yet, and that we don't know what percentage of this company, of TikTok, that Walmart would be owning. Um, But I am told that assuming that Walmart does participate, Walmart would get a board seat. My colleague David Faber reported that as well this morning. Now, I'm told that both Walmart and Oracle would be getting less than 20 percent of TikTok, and that it's possible that Walmart could actually get a bigger percent of the company than Oracle does, but that both would be less than 20% because it will not be a majority U.S.-owned company. This would be majority China-owned with ByteDance owning a majority of the company. So I think it's very important to note here that that's why there would be a maximum of 20% for either uh, Walmart or for Oracle in order to maintain that China um, ownership there. Um, so just just we're trying to get more details here. We still don't know what percentage it would be, but I am told less mm. than 20%. And we do expect this to be resolved very soon, Kelly, because remember, there is that deadline that the president set of Sunday. Yes, the 20th. Julia, stay with us for one more moment, if you will. I just want to bounce this off of everybody. So, Ed, you in particular, I mean, if this is not going to give the U.S. majority control, it sounds like that remains a major sticking point with the administration, unless now it's not. 
Well, and so, you know, Trump set the terms, right? He said it needs to be majority U.S. owned or entirely U.S. owned. You know, he could he's used to changing his mind uh, on the fly. And that that's not unusual. The other calculus here is that Larry Ellison, a good friend of the president, you know, he stands to lose a potentially a big uh, cloud cloud deal with this. Right. So it's not just the investment. They become the cloud provider. Uh, for a, a fast-growing social network. So there's money in it for Oracle and for Larry Ellison. To, the degree to which Ellison can, can coax Trump saying, hey, you know what, it's still going to be okay. Don't worry about it. Security concerns, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have to be a majority owner. That's the other calculus here, I think, Got in terms it. of what happens on Sunday or before Sunday. So, Deirdre, perhaps Oracle is trying to salvage this by convincing the president it doesn't have to be majority owned just so they can maintain uh, that that big client base that Ed is talking about. I mean, it's interesting to look at the details of this and see that Oracle's is now supposed to be vetting the data uh, that TikTok U.S. is collecting and kind of flagging if they think they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing. But unanswered is the question of China's involvement, majority or not, if they're able to just so, kind of demand any data that they want to look at and be able to access that. There's also the big question of Beijing's approval. We still don't really know yeah. their thinking because they don't talk about this on the regular. They're not like the president that's tweeting about it and answering questions. Are they ultimately going to approve a deal that gives them the majority that allows their technology to be used over here in America. I keep going back to that comment from Bill Gates many weeks ago, calling this deal a poisoned chalice. This seems so apt right now. Oracle, what are they going to get? Is it going to be a lot of trouble for them? They're going to have to prove that they can keep data secure, um, that they can keep their privacy controls in there. And all the while, while it may still be owned by the majority owned in China. So this is just yeah. looking more and more like a mess. The further we go on, nothing is certain, particularly, though, I want to main highlight the Beijing side of things. No, you're absolutely right. Julia, before we let you go, can you clarify when you're saying that less than a 20 percent stake, is that for either Oracle or Microsoft or even combined? So. No, I'm told that both of them, both Oracle, not because Microsoft is not participating in this anymore. I'm sorry, so both Walmart, Oracle yep, and yep. Walmart and Walmart would have less than 20 percent each. So um, less than 20 percent each. I'm not I'm not clear on how much less than 20 percent it, it would be. I am told that the Walmart percentage is still being worked out. And it would be very interesting if Walmart did have a bigger piece than Oracle did. Um, and obviously, Oracle does have that strategic interest as well doing the cloud partnership. Um, but it will be really interesting to see the kind of role that Walmart could play effectively as a partner, especially with the board seat in trying to make sure that they really use TikTok as a tool for yeah. e-commerce. So a lot still up in the air, but I do think we should hear more definitively what this looks like soon. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that to us, Julia. We appreciate it. Julia Borson shares of both uh, Walmart and Oracle are fractionally lower, so they're clearly treading water ahead of any final outcome here. So let's move on, talk about the IPO of the week, Snowflake. Its shares are falling today after more than doubling yesterday. The stock, priced at $120 a share, opened at $245, surged as high as $319, at which point the company was worth $88 billion. So now people are wondering, Leslie, how much money they left on the table by doing this and kind of doesn't speak to the issues people have with the IPO process more generally. It absolutely does. And, and we pulled some data. We went digging into the IPO archives and found that the $3.8 billion that Snowflake left on the table in pricing its IPO where it did yesterday actually ranks among the top 
most amount of money left on a table. Uh, going back at least 12 years to Visa's IPO back in 2008, that company left about $5 billion on the table. It actually surpassed the amount of money left on the table by Alibaba, which was the biggest IPO uh, ever listed in the United States. And that's because Alibaba only sold a minority of its offering by the company. The rest was sold by Jack Ma and Yahoo and a bunch of inside investors. So uh, that's certainly noteworthy, especially as critics point to this process and yeah. say, hey, maybe it's not as efficient as it needs to be. And But I don't know, Ed, you know, is the enemy of or making the perfect the enemy of the good here? I, I just wonder if this is more emblem. It's just such a hot IPO year. In fact, to that point, and Leslie told us it was going to be a strange September for IPOs. <laughs> we now have a SPAC that people say could end up acquiring the likes of Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow's company as a lifestyle, right. an aspirational lifestyle SPAC filing. Richard Branson uh, wants to raise almost half a billion dollars for his SPAC. So should we really fault the IPO process here or is it just emblematic of where the the interest is? I, I think it's more the interest. I think, you know, the, the backdrop to all of this is that we are now living in this super low interest rate environment, and that has really changed the calculus for investors everywhere. So both the sort of emergence of SPAC, that whole sort of phenomenon, and then this crazy pop that Snowflake had where they did leave a lot of money on the table. Look, IPO pricing has always been an alchemy more than a science anyway. So, And the fact that there hadn't really been sort of a big tech IPO in a while shows you the hunger, right, that investors, they need return. So with interest rates as low as they are, and that's going to stay there for a while. I mean, Chairman Powell sort of set the table for that going forward. You know, it, it, there's hunger for this, right? And that's what SPACs are as well. SPACs are just sort of, you know, market making in reverse, right? It's investors telling companies, hey, you need to go public now. We've got the money here, right? And so that and the, and the pop with, with Snowflake was the same thing. We just, they were so hungry for it. I think Warren Buffett's investment certainly helped in that particular case, but it's more the circumstance. And I think it's lower interest, interest rates more than anything else. Fair enough. It was a funny coincidence to have it go public yesterday as the Fed is laying out this new plan to not raise rates for, you know, 4,000 years or whatever. But I like that line, market making in reverse right. <laughs> for the SPAC. Let's switch gears here and talk about one of the major stories in the restaurant space. Dining out in New York City could get a little pricier after city council just approved legislation that would allow restaurants to charge customers a 10 percent COVID relief fee. They can charge this for up to 90 days after full indoor dining resumes in the city. It only applies to small restaurants with no more than 15 locations. It can't be added to takeout or delivery. A small step meant to help the restaurants out. The industry at large is estimated to have lost $165 billion dollars. In sales between March and July, Leslie, you know, again, I think it's a delicate dance between the restaurants, though, to make sure that that they're not going to turn customers off with this charge. The ones who do right. choose to, to do it, they could obviously just raise menu prices or... Or just wait and see how what demand is like. Right. I, I actually have paid one of these fees. I saw it on the bill and I thought, okay, that's that's actually nice. As a customer, I thought, okay, we've been kind of talking about ways of, to give back to restaurants in our in our community because we don't want them to all shut down. Okay, so here's one way to do it. Now, what I hope doesn't happen, I hope people don't see that and think that's the tip and take money away from the servers. Hmm. Um, but as far as a gesture to help keep restaurants in business, I think it's great. What I don't want to have happen is have, you know, we, we haven't seen additional stimulus come into uh, the market yet. They haven't agreed on that in Washington. So do consumers start to be a little bit more stingy right. in terms of dining out? Do they see this 10 percent increase as maybe something that uh, turns them away? Maybe they'll do takeout instead to avoid that. I don't know. Um, but at least for, you know, from my psychology and eating out, I thought it was a nice thing. Yeah, at least it's not mandatory. Deirdre, what's it like out west right now? I mean, are there is this a common practice? 
Well, you don't even have indoor dining yet in California. So one of the questions oh. I had in reading this story was a 10% surcharge. Is that really going to help restaurants when they're at 25% capacity? Sure, I, of course, wouldn't mind paying that 10% surcharge. I hope many other customers wouldn't either. But really, does it go far enough instead of these sort of fees that you add on? As Leslie said, there's a question of stimulus, too, and relief for small businesses. Do you need something bigger? And I'm just skeptical that a 10% surcharge is actually going to solve a lot of the problems that these restaurants are facing, and particularly in California. Yeah, and even in New York, Ed, there's some who say, is this just the kind yeah. of administration's effort to say, hey, look, we're helping you out, even though the restaurant, a lot of restaurants wanted to be able to open for indoor dining much sooner or in a much more scaled up way? Yeah, and I think it is a way to placate from from local government. I, to Dieter's point, I think what really is required is, is federal funding, right? Federal funds, federal help relief for for all these restaurants also are people going to be dining indoors anyway even with that uh, restriction lifted even with 25 percent capacity you know my wife and i we're not really going out to restaurants anymore but we are certainly ordering in and we're happy to tack on an extra 20 or 30 percent for the tip to help out the restaurants and i i think adding more to the bill is fine for i think a lot of customers frankly it's more a question of where's the federal relief and right you know are will people really want to be inside and, anymore what were you going to say deirdre and Ed hits on a really important point there, and that is the fees that these restaurants are paying for the app delivery companies, right? We've seen caps um, in some cities with regards to takeout and delivery from the Uber Eats, the DoorDashes, et cetera. And there you could argue is a much bigger problem because the restaurant is giving up so much more of their margin. So perhaps that would make a bigger difference if those kinds of commission caps went further That's lower. That's true. And then yet people are going to be like, now I'm really paying through the nose. All right. Finally, and, and kind of we're talking about whether you're going back to the restaurants. Well, don't count on seeing everyone back in the office. BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, who oversees the world's largest asset manager with nearly $8 trillion, that's just a huge amount in assets. Uh, he's just made a bold statement about the future of work from home. He says, quote, I don't believe BlackRock will ever be 100 percent back in the office, maybe 60 or 70 percent. And maybe that's a rotation of people. But I don't believe we'll ever have a full cadre of people back in office. Uh, Leslie, I mean, I can see the the pros, the cons of this. Um, but I, it seems like a big number to say that, hey, 30 or 40 percent of our workforce is is basically never going to be back. And they have a lot of people. That's a lot of office space they may or may not need. Yeah, so I've actually been inside BlackRock's offices in Midtown. Uh, they were looking and, and have signed a lease, actually, to move to Hudson Yards. It's a $1.25 billion lease over 20 years. They were moving there to have more of an open floor plan, more of kind of a tech-like feel, uh, to have more of that kind of culture within their ranks. Now, of course, the pandemic hits. They're supposed to move in uh, May 1st, 2023. Uh, so it's still a long way off. But, uh, you know, it's just amazing how things are completely being yeah. uh, rethought in this new world, especially with companies like BlackRock that have already planned on uh, kind of renovating and and uh, and and yeah. redoing their workspace. I know we got to go, but Adam, I'm going to give you the last word because I, I started by giving you a hard time. So I, I, in this one, also, it's interesting, the journal is running this op-ed today from a PR firm that says, we're bringing everybody back. You know, it's important to our productivity and just to kind of happiness. And I, do you think we're going to end up actually saying, nah, we were all joking. We're all 100% back in office as soon as possible. It, it just may take a little while. 
I, I think Mr. Finger is actually correct. I think it's not just for BlackRock. I think it's really for pretty much all of corporate America. You're never going to get 100 percent back. And that's just because, you know, workspaces have changed and the, the thinking around how work has changed. And, you know, life under pandemic has sort of proven that, hey, you can still do it. And a lot of businesses haven't really lost much of a beat there. So they figured, great. So less office space, more flexibility for, for, for workers. That's that's what it is now going forward. Crazy. All right. Thank you all so much today. Leslie Picker, Ed Lee, Dear Jabosa on the special edition of Rapid Fire. Coming up, a key market signal that should have the bulls cheering. We'll tell you what it is and what it means for stocks. Stick around. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines are Leslie Picker, New York Times reporter and CNBC contributor Ed Lee with his uh, not air, but they've got a wire, Ed. It's a bad look. Okay. Oh, really? Come on. I thought I thought this was because my wife was telling me the earpods made me look weird. So I switched it up now. Come on. Yeah, You don't look you're... weird. You just look a little few years behind the times. But it, you know, oh, okay. it's, it's no that's problem. not unusual. <laughs> no, we are delighted to have you here today, along with our own dear Jabosa, uh, because this is an edition I've of Rapid... IFB. Do you think you need one? That's true. I need an IFB. You know, send me an IFB. I'll put it in so I'll, I'll, I can manage it myself next time. But we'll, this is more fun to give we'll you a it. hard time this way. OK, um, you, can, you can make fun of me this way. Next, but we yeah. are. We are very, very glad that you all are here. And we're going to start with the big story of the day, a fast-moving story, uh, in fact. So it's, it's all about TikTok. Let's get you the very latest. Sources are telling CNBC that President Trump is expected to decide on TikTok's fate in the U.S. in the next 24 to 36 hours. They're saying Walmart is expected to partner with Oracle for the deal. And we're actually getting some new details on this at this very moment. So let's also bring in our Julia Borson. Julia, what can you tell us? Well, Kelly, I'm hearing from sources that Walmart is definitely expected to be in this deal, that it's not final yet, and that we don't know what percentage of this company, of TikTok, that Walmart would be owning. Um, but I am told that assuming that Walmart does participate, Walmart would get a board seat. My colleague David Faber reported that as well this morning. Now, I'm told that both Walmart and Oracle would be getting less than 20 percent of TikTok and that it's possible that Walmart could actually get a bigger percent of the company than Oracle does, but that both would be less than 20 percent because it will not be a majority U.S.-owned company. This would be majority China-owned with ByteDance owning a majority of the company. So I think it's very important to note here that that's why there would be a maximum of 20 percent for either uh, Walmart or for Oracle in order to maintain that China um, ownership there. Um, so just just we're trying to get more details here. We still don't know what percentage it would be, but I am told less mm. than 20 percent. And we do expect this to be resolved very soon, Kelly, because remember, there is that deadline that the president set of Sunday. Yes, the 20th. Julia, stay with us for one more moment, if you will. I just want to bounce us off of everybody. So, Ed, you in particular, I mean, if this is not going to give the U.S. majority control, it sounds like that remains a major sticking point with the administration, unless now it's not. Well, and so, you know, Trump set the terms, right? He said it needs to be majority U.S. owned or entirely U.S. owned. You know, he could... He's used to changing his mind uh, on the fly, and that, that's not unusual. The other calculus here is that Larry Ellison, a good friend of the president, you know, he stands to lose a potentially a big uh, cloud, cloud deal with this, right? So it's not just the investment. They become the cloud provider uh, for a, a fast-growing social network. So there's money in it for Oracle and for Larry Ellison. The degree to which Ellison can, can coax 
Trump saying, hey, you know what, it's still going to be okay. Don't worry about it. Security concerns, et cetera, et cetera. We don't have to be a majority owner. That's the other calculus here, I think, in terms of what happens on Sunday or before Sunday. So, Deirdre, perhaps Oracle is trying to salvage this by convincing the president it doesn't have to be majority owned just so they can maintain uh, that that big client base that Ed is talking about. I mean, it's interesting to look at the details of this and see that Oracle's is now supposed to be vetting the data uh, that TikTok U.S. is collecting and kind of flagging if they think they're doing something they're not supposed to be doing. But unanswered is the question of China's involvement, majority or not, if they're able to just kind of demand any data that they want to look at and be able to access that. There's also the big question of Beijing's approval. We still don't really know their thinking because they don't talk about this on the regular. They're not like the president that's tweeting about it and answering questions. Are they ultimately going to approve a deal that gives them the majority that allows their technology to be used over here in America? I keep going back to that comment from Bill Gates many weeks ago, calling this deal a poisoned chalice. This seems so apt right now. Oracle, what are they going to get? Is it going to be a lot of trouble for them? They're going to have to prove that they can keep data secure, um, that they can keep their privacy controls in there. And all the while, while it may still be owned by the majority owned in China. So this is just looking more and more like a mess the further we go on. Nothing is certain, particularly, though, I want to make highlight the Beijing side of things. No, you're absolutely right. Julia, before we let you go, can you clarify when you're saying that less than a 20 percent stake, is that for either Oracle or Microsoft or even combined? So, no, I'm told that both of them, both Oracle, not because Microsoft is not participating in this anymore. I'm sorry, both Walmart and Walmart and Walmart would have less than 20 percent each. So um, less than 20 percent each. I'm not I'm not clear on how much less than 20 percent it it would be. I am told that the Walmart percentage is still being worked out. And it would be very interesting if Walmart did have a bigger piece than Oracle did. Um, And obviously, Oracle does have that strategic interest as well, doing the cloud partnership. Um, But it will be really interesting to see the kind of role that Walmart could play effectively as a partner, especially with the board seat in trying to make sure that they really use TikTok as a tool for e-commerce. So a lot still up in the air, but I do think we should hear more definitively what this looks like soon. Yeah, no, thank you for bringing that to us, Julia. We appreciate it, Julia Borson. Shares of both uh, Walmart and Oracle are fractionally lower, so they're clearly treading water ahead of any final outcome here. So let's move on and talk about the IPO of the week, Snowflake. Its shares are falling today after more than doubling yesterday. The stock, priced at $120 a share, opened at $245, surged as high as $319, at which point the company was worth $88 billion. So now people are wondering, Leslie, how much money they left on the table by doing this and kind of does it speak to the issues people have with the IPO process more generally. It absolutely does. And and we pulled some data. We went digging into the IPO archives and found that the $3.8 billion that Snowflake left on the table in pricing its IPO where it did yesterday actually ranks among the top most amount of money left on a table uh, going back at least 12 years to Visa's IPO back in 2008. That company left about $5 billion on the table. It actually surpassed the amount of money left on the table by Alibaba, which was the biggest IPO uh, ever listed in the United States. And that's because Alibaba only sold a minority of its offering by the company. The rest was sold by Jack Ma and Yahoo and a bunch of inside investors. So uh, that's certainly noteworthy, especially as critics point to this process and yeah. say, hey, maybe it's not as efficient as it needs to be. And But I don't know, Ed, you know, is the enemy of or making the perfect the enemy of the good here? I, 
I just wonder if this is more emblem. It's just such a hot IPO year. In fact, to that point, and Leslie told us it was going to be a strange September for IPOs. <laughs> we now have a SPAC that people say could end up acquiring the likes of Goop, Gwyneth Paltrow's company as a lifestyle, right. an aspirational lifestyle SPAC filing. Richard Branson uh, wants to raise almost half a billion dollars for his SPAC. So should we really fault the IPO process here or is it just emblematic of where the the interest is? I, I think it's more the interest. I think, you know, the, the backdrop to all of this is that we are now living in this super low interest rate environment, and that has really changed the calculus for investors everywhere. So both the sort of emergence of SPAC, that whole sort of phenomenon, and then this crazy pop that Snowflake had where they did leave a lot of money on the table. Look, IPO pricing has always been an alchemy more than a science anyway. So, And the fact that there hadn't really been sort of a big tech IPO in a while shows you the hunger, right, that investors, they need return. So with interest rates as low as they are, and that's going to stay there for a while. I mean, Chairman Powell sort of set the table for that going forward. You know, it, it, there's hunger for this, right? And that's what SPACs are as well. SPACs are just sort of, you know, market making in reverse, right? It's investors telling companies, hey, you need to go public now. We've got the money here, right? And so that and the, and the pop with, with Snowflake was the same thing. We just, they were so hungry for it. I think Warren Buffett's investment certainly helped in that particular case, but it's more the circumstance. And I think it's lower interest, interest rates more than anything else. Fair enough. It was a funny coincidence to have it go public yesterday as the Fed is laying out this new plan to not raise rates for, you know, 4,000 years or whatever. But I like that line, market making in reverse right. <laughs> for the SPAC. Let's switch gears here and talk about one of the major stories in the restaurant space. Dining out in New York City could get a little pricier after city council just approved legislation that would allow restaurants to charge customers a 10 percent COVID relief fee. They can charge this for up to 90 days after full indoor dining resumes in the city. It only applies to small restaurants with no more than 15 locations. It can't be added to takeout or delivery. A small step meant to help the restaurants out. The industry at large is estimated to have lost $165 billion dollars. In sales between March and July, Leslie, you know, again, I think it's a delicate dance between the restaurants, though, to make sure that that they're not going to turn customers off with this charge. The ones who do right. choose to, to do it, they could obviously just raise menu prices or or just wait and see how what demand is like. Right. I, I actually have paid one of these fees. I saw it on the bill and I thought, OK, that's that's actually nice. As a customer, I thought, OK, we've been kind of talking about ways of, to give back to restaurants in our in our community because we don't want them to all shut down. OK, so here's one way to do it. Now, what I hope doesn't happen, I hope people don't see that and think that's the tip and take money away from the servers. Hmm. Um, but as far as a gesture to help keep restaurants in business, I think it's great. What I don't want to have happen is have, you know, we, we haven't seen additional stimulus come into uh, the market yet. They haven't agreed on that in Washington. So do consumers start to be a little bit more stingy right. in terms of dining out? Do they see this 10 percent increase as maybe something that uh, turns them away? Maybe they'll do takeout instead to avoid that. I don't know. Um, but at least for, you know, from my psychology and eating out, I thought it was a nice thing. Yeah, at least it's not mandatory. Deirdre, what's it like out west right now? I mean, are there is this a common practice? Well, you don't even have indoor dining yet in California. So one of the questions oh. I had in reading this story was a 10% surcharge. Is that really going to help restaurants when they're at 25% capacity? Sure, I, of course, wouldn't mind paying that 10% surcharge. I hope many other customers wouldn't either. But 
really doesn't go far enough. Instead of these sort of fees that you add on, as Leslie said, there's a question of stimulus, too, and relief for small businesses. Do you need something bigger? And I'm just skeptical that a 10 percent surcharge is actually going to solve a lot of the problems that these restaurants are facing, and particularly in California. Yeah. And even in New York, Ed, there's some who say, is this just the kind yeah. of administration's effort to say, hey, look, we're helping you out, even though the restaurant, a lot of restaurants wanted to be able to open for indoor dining much sooner or in a much more scaled up way? Yeah, I think it is a way to placate from from local government. I, to Dieter's point, I think what really is required is, is federal funding, right? Federal funds, federal help, relief for, for all these restaurants. Also, are people going to be dining indoors anyway, even with that uh, restriction lifted, even with 25% capacity? You know, my wife and I, we're not really going out to restaurants anymore, but we are certainly ordering in and we're happy to tack on an extra 20 or 30% for the tip to help out the restaurants. And I, I think adding more to the bill is fine for, I think, a lot of customers, frankly. It's more a question of where's the federal relief and, right. you know, are, will people really want to be inside Ed, anymore? What were you going to say, Deirdre? Ed. Ed hits on a really important point there, and that is the fees that these restaurants are paying for the app delivery companies, right? We've seen caps um, in some cities with regards to takeout and delivery from the Uber Eats, the DoorDashes, et cetera. And there you could argue is a much bigger problem because the restaurant is giving up so much more of their margin. So perhaps that would make a bigger difference if those kinds of commission caps went further That's lower. That's true. And then yet people are going to be like, now I'm really paying through the nose. All right. Finally, and, and kind of we're talking about whether you're going back to the restaurants. Well, don't count on seeing everyone back in the office. BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, who oversees the world's largest asset manager with nearly $8 trillion, that's just a huge amount in assets. Uh, he's just made a bold statement about the future of work from home. He says, quote, I don't believe BlackRock will ever be 100 percent back in the office, maybe 60 or 70 percent. And maybe that's a rotation of people. But I don't believe we'll ever have a full cadre of people back in office. Uh, Leslie, I mean, I can see the, the pros, the cons of this. Um, but I, it seems like a big number to say that, hey, 30 or 40 percent of our workforce is is basically never going to be back. And they have a lot of people. That's a lot of office space they may or may not need. Yeah, so I've actually been inside BlackRock's offices in Midtown. Uh, they were looking and, and have signed a lease, actually, to move to Hudson Yards. It's a $1.25 billion lease over 20 years. They were moving there to have more of an open floor plan, more of kind of a tech-like feel, uh, to have more of that kind of culture within their ranks. Now, of course, the pandemic hits. They're supposed to move in uh, May 1st, 2023. Uh, so it's still a long way off. But, uh, you know, it's just amazing how things are completely being yeah. uh, rethought in this new world, especially with companies like BlackRock that have already planned on uh, kind of renovating and and uh, and and yeah. redoing their workspace. I know we got to go, but Adam, I'm going to give you the last word because I, I started by giving you a hard time. So I, I, in this one, also, it's interesting, the journal is running this op-ed today from a PR firm that says, we're bringing everybody back. You know, it's important to our productivity and just to kind of happiness. And I, do you think we're going to end up actually saying, nah, we were all joking. We're all 100% back in office as soon as possible. It, it just might take a little while. I, I think Mr. Fink is actually correct. I think it's not just for BlackRock. I think it's really for pretty much all of corporate America. You're never going to get 100 percent back. And that's just because, you know, workspaces have changed and the, the thinking around how work has changed. And, you know, life under pandemic has sort of proven that, hey, you can still do it. And a lot of businesses haven't really lost much of a beat there. So they figured, great. So less office space, more flexibility for, for, for workers. That's that's what it is now going forward. Crazy. All right. Thank you all so much today. Leslie Picker, Ed Lee, Deirdre Bosa on the special. 
special edition of Rapid Fire. Coming up, a key market signal that should have the bulls cheering. We'll tell you what it is and what it means for stocks. Stick around. Welcome back to The Exchange. The Nasdaq selling off again today. It's down about 10 percent from its recent intraday high on September 2nd. Meanwhile, the transports, industrials, the materials sectors are up about 4 percent in the past week. They're outperforming again today. My next guest says this is a bullish sign. Joining me now is John Spallanzani, portfolio manager at Miller Value Partners. John, we had a guest top of the hour who said that the pullback in tech was about fears about the economy. You think something different is going on, right? Yeah, I think that... uh a lot of times we hear on uh, obviously on the airwaves that uh, the, the, the market breadth is too narrow. There's too few stocks that are leading us. And then as soon as the market corrects a little bit and the leadership broadens out from the high flyers, high growers to more uh, lower valued, uh, uh, better valued stocks uh, in terms of growth, then we, you know, people are like, oh, my God, it's 1999 again. It's 2008. And we see a lot of fear. So. I think that uh, right now, right now, what's happening is after the Fed meeting, obviously, there's always a little bit of digestion. We're going to get Fed speakers coming out the next few days. We'll get the Fed minutes later in the month. And, uh, you know, Jay Powell said yesterday that he wants to have he kind of slipped, but he said unemployment back to three and a half percent. He's going to be lower for longer. Inflation is going to stay low. And that, that really favors, obviously, the industrials, the materials. Uh, and those and the transportation stocks, yeah. uh, we saw UPS and obviously FedEx blowouts. You just mentioned stay at home. Larry Fink, le- less pe- people are going to need stuff delivered to their homes. Amazon effect, all that kind of stuff. So yesterday we saw the stay at home stocks actually sold off a little bit. That even included stocks like uh, Camping World and, uh, you know, Zoom Video, those kind of stocks into, you know, GE was the big the leader yeah. yesterday and today. I'm curious, uh, John, though, saw, we, the, the trillion dollar question for everybody over this market is, can the materials be the new leadership? I mean, is this going to power, power the whole markets forward? I think I think the technology stocks will still be bought on dips. But, you know, if we go back to big picture, right, don't don't short central banks. And don't short technology. I think that took us from June until this point. Going forward, obviously, we have the election. If you have, you know, 100 uh, percent gains in some of these stocks, you're going to take some off the table and move it into less uh, less lo- lower P stocks than what you had. at you know, 100 times sales like Snowflake or something like that. So it makes sense. Right. We have this big unknown in the future in about 48 days, uh, 45 days, which is the election. Nobody knows what's going to happen. But one thing we do know what's going to happen is that whoever wins the election is going to either do infrastructure. They're going to do some type of MMT. Right. There's going to be a big uh, Hmm. a big push on both sides of the aisle to continue the stimulus, as Jay Powell said. So what we saw Jackson Hole was he said that he's going to do his part. Now the fiscal side has to do their part. So you have if you have ice uh, ice cube coming out and. basically retweeting Stephanie Kelton's book that says MMT is good for everybody. That's going to help a lot of the problems that we have right now in terms of income inequality. A lot of things get solved. When unemployment goes down, people's incomes go up, which is kind of where we were pre-COVID. That solves a lot of the a lot of the issues. And, you know, even if you look at Bernie Sanders, some of the things that he said, you know, pushing for a $15 minimum wage, even though I'm not a huge Bernie Sanders fan, fan but some of that is coming into mainstream thinking. Definitely. And obviously, 
uh, Stephanie was part of his uh, yeah. crew no, back I th- in the day. I think it's, you know people will listen to this, and as you're saying, the, ro- the rotation is for real. It, it doesn't mean tech's going to crash, but it does mean that kind of things are on the right track, and, and fiscal could kick in, especially with infrastructure. John, we appreciate- have home builders and banks. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Housing good. in there, yep. financials too. John Spallanzani, thank you, sir. A pleasure. Thank you. Kelly. With Miller Value Partners joining me today. Still ahead, it's not just hand soap and bikes that are out of stock. A key part of the whole supply and delivery chain is in very high demand as more consumers order online. We'll tell you about that next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us on the CNBC app. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. The pandemic has pulled forward 10 years of e-commerce adoption into just the past three months, according to McKinsey. That's been a huge boon for warehouses, as the surge in packages, coupled with one-day shipping, has created a huge need for space. It's estimated that an additional 1 billion square feet of warehouse space might be needed in the next five years just to keep up. My next guest is the chief executive of an online startup that's helping retailers meet that need. Let's bring in Carl Siebrecht. He's the co-founder and CEO of On Demand Warehouse Logistics Startup. Up Flex. Flex with an E. Carl, it's good to have you. Welcome. It's good to be here, Kelly. Thanks. So you sort of are like the sales force of warehouses, meaning you give companies the tools to kind of scale up and scale down very quickly. Um, so a retailer, for instance, might realize, hey, I, I need some extra space. Like, where do you have some that I can use? Is that right? That's exactly right. Flex provides very flexible and highly scalable e-commerce fulfillment solutions. And we do that for large enterprise customers. And importantly, Uh, We make that capacity available on a pay-as-you-go basis. So traditionally, the fixed costs that can be barriers to scaling don't exist with our model. That lets our clients be very agile uh, and lets them scale up very economically. So I'm curious, though, because it often would seem that a warehouse, and we can look to Amazon's recent announcement that it's adding, I think, a 1,000 warehouses across the country closer uh, to neighborhoods so it can do one-hour delivery. But, you know, this would be a permanent investment. I mean, do people do this often as a precursor to permanent investment, or why would it be that they might need a lot of warehouse space in one place one day and and not necessarily need it the next? That's right. So Flex provides flexibility, but it also provides reach and scale. So to put this in perspective, as you alluded to, Amazon just announced 1,000 more warehouse locations across the country. That's on top of 200 that they already have. Other top 10 e-commerce providers in the U.S., as an example, Best Buy, Analysts say they have 10 locations. Home Depot has four with plans to add more. Through Flex, we have over 1,500 locations because our technology platform allows our customers to plug into this massive network of providers. So it's not just scaling up and scaling down. It's actually scaling out. Yeah. Carl, in the quick couple seconds that we have, uh, why not an IPO this year? Look at the market. The, the COVID has been tough for most everybody in every way, shape, and form, but it's been great for e-commerce and it's created huge tailwinds for our business. We feel very lucky and fortunate for that. And at this point, we just continue to solve harder and harder problems for our customers, helping them scale up okay. and helping them reach that consumer demand uh, for fast uh, products at our doorsteps. Well, warehouse is just the latest in our out-of-space, uh, out-of-stock segment. Carl, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Carl Siebrecht is the co-founder and CEO of Flex with an E. We've got some more breaking news on TikTok. Julia Borson here with those details. Julia. 
Kelly, sources telling me that TikTok Global plans to file for an IPO in about a year on one of the U.S. stock exchanges. So this, of course, uh, sort of changes the equation of the investment we're uh, expecting both Oracle and Walmart to make in the company. Um, but a big headline there from my sources that TikTok Global does plan to file for an IPO on one of the U.S. stock exchanges in about a year. You see Walmart shares trading up uh, just a fraction of a percent and Oracle shares down 0.7 percent. Back over to you. But Julia, TikTok Global is the parent company, right? So they're not saying, hey, we're going to take the U.S. unit public, which was one possible option for getting out of this whole thing. They're saying, oh, as 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 an offering, we would take TikTok Global in the U.S. and that's some sort of carrot. Yes, I believe that's the case. Remember, ByteDance is separate. ByteDance would be profiting from this. Um, but the, the global TikTok property, which the U.S. piece um, is, is, you know, a key part of, would be what would be taken public. Wow. OK, we'll see how that goes down uh, in this whole process. Julia, thank you very much. Julia Borston, that does it for us here on The Exchange. I will see you on the other side of this break with Tyler Matheson for a great edition of Power Lunch. Don't miss it. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step. But having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.